with his disciples on at the Last Supper, he gave it to them and he said, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. And we saw during our study of the Lord's Supper, of Paul's understanding of the Lord's Supper in Corinthians, that Paul was careful to keep that tradition intact. In fact, not only did he say it after the bread, he also added it to the wine. Do this in remembrance of me. What does that word remembrance mean to us? What does that word remembrance mean to us? Is remembering simply a mental activity during which we consciously review an event or an experience from the past, or is it something more? Is it something more? For the prophets, for Jesus, for St. Paul, it is an idea that is far greater than a mental exercise. Fee helps us. He says, in the Old Testament, remembrance rarely carries the common English nuance of simply a mental activity. Very often, memory and action go together. God remembers and visits, or God remembers and forgives, or God remembers and blots out. So all Israel is to remember by erecting a memorial and by reenacting a rite. So the Passover feast, for example, is one of those reenactments. It's a, it's a rite of what God did in Egypt. And Jesus took that Passover feast, reimagined it for us as this table, where we remember what God did at Calvary. A reenactment, a remembering. But in Scripture, remembrance even goes further. It goes further than even that, of just partaking of the bread and wine and remembering Jesus died for us. Murphy O'Connor, in his own study of 1 Corinthians, helps us get to the depth of this idea when he writes, Authentic remembrance is concerned with the past only insofar as it is constitutive of the present and a summons to the future. What Paul desires to evoke is the active remembrance of total commitment to Christ, which makes the past real in the present, thus releasing a power capable of shaping the future. I love that. And that is a beautiful way to approach this table. A beautiful way. Remembering Christ's sacrificial love by committing to doing life in the same way. So the present and future for us becomes what Christ did in the past. We spent three weeks on the Lord's Supper. Hopefully some of you were here for that. And now we are in our third week of this parable. And for those of you who have been here, no doubt you have made the connections. Now in this parable, as you read it, it's obvious how grotesque the rich man's abuse of Lazarus was, right? <clears throat> and that should help us better understand, in retrospect, the problem in Corinth. Because in fact, the problem in Corinth was even more grotesque than the way this rich man treated Lazarus. You see, at least in this parable, Lazarus is on the outside of the gate. And also in the rich man's mind, he is at least a stranger. But in Corinth, the rich people were abusing poor people that they were in community with. Not strangers, not outside the gate, at the same feast with. And they were doing it at a table where they were supposed to be celebrating sacrificial love for others. 
What a grotesque problem Paul was dealing with in Corinth. As Paul said, they were really doing no remembrance of the Lord at all. None. None. And here in our parable, Abraham too knows that there is something powerful about remembering, and so he says, remember. Remember. And the first thing that he wants the rich man to remember is, you received good things. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the verb in the original is passive. And it suggests that his good things were all a gift. He did not earn them. They were never truly his. And this is not a unique reality for this rich man. This is the only reality there is. The psalmist wrote, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Everything belongs to God. There were some beautiful lines in the worship set this morning about this very concept. In America, especially, we have a really hard time grasping this reality. We pride ourselves on what we have as ours. We earned it. We own it. It's mine. And there's a lot of things that go into that mentality, but I think one of the many things that go into that mentality and make it so easy for us is we are now so far removed from food production, aren't we? So we go to work, and we make our money, because it was our time and it was our labor, and then we go into the supermarket and we buy our food. That's all there, already there. It's in a jar, it's in a box, it's, it's there. And we bring it home and eat it because it's ours. And we don't ever once give any thought to a sun and rain and earth that we had nothing to do with making. And that without, there would be no food, regardless of how rich any of us were. And so because of that and many other reasons, we have this mentality, it's mine. But scripture says differently. Scripture says we're stewards, we're not owners, and everything we have is from God and for us to use to celebrate his kingdom and to witness to his kingdom. He gives to us freely so we can give to others freely. The rich man did not get this at all in life, and in death he refuses to receive this knowledge too. He won't remember he won't. Now, a quick side note here. Abraham calls the rich man by this great word. It's an affectionate name, and it means my dear boy in the original. My dear boy. This is the name the father in the prodigal son story used to call the older son, to try to woo him back into the party. The older son had abused his father, but his father still responded with kindness. And in our story, by virtue of the rich man abusing Abraham's guest of honor, he's abused Abraham, but Abraham still responds with kindness. Please do not underestimate this detail of this story. Jesus said, but love your enemies, do good to them, 
and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. You know, <laughs> I, I sort of missed this for 49 years of my life. I was reading this this week, and I read this line, and lend to them, lend to them, enemies. We don't even lend to friends without expecting to get it back. No wonder Jesus got killed. He was, he was ridiculous. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Or do you show contempt? This is St. Paul. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? We're saying that today. You know, I think the Great Commission would go a long way to being fulfilled if many of us Christians just learned kindness. Kindness. Maybe we wouldn't need $2 million Christmas extravaganzas and maybe we wouldn't have to spend millions of dollars on outreach programs and evangelistic concerts. If we just learned to be kind. Kind. God's kind. Perhaps we should be kind if we call ourselves his children. So anyway, then notice, Abraham says, Lazarus is comforted here. Now, Lazarus is comforted here. So, Bailey helps us understand this. It was his psychic pain that hurt the most. While reclining with Abraham, he is comforted. Someone cares for him and does not leave him in earshot of banquets that produce garbage, which he longs to eat but cannot because it is fed to the dogs. The key phrase, now he is comforted, emphasizes that the source of the most pain, painful evil Lazarus endured was the treatment he received from the rich man. God gave good things to the rich man, and that same rich man, in turn, passed on evil things to Lazarus lying at his gate. So, the rich man's response to the circumstances of his life, which were good, mostly, maybe, his response to that was self-indulgence, arrogance, and contempt for those in need. No wonder he could not access the meaning of his life. He could not grasp the significance of what Abraham was trying to call him to. Remembrance. Remembrance. Authentic remembrance is to bring about repentance. That's a loaded word, so let me break it down. It's to bring about a change of mind. A new way of looking at things. And ultimately, a new way of living. That's what remembrance is. This guy rejected that call in life, and he continues to reject that call in death. But Lazarus, on the other hand, responded to the circumstances of his life very differently, and his circumstances were mostly suffering. He responded with a humility that echoed of Jesus Christ. And in such, he was able to access the fuller meaning of his life, the fuller meaning of life in general, which is redemption. Consider Abraham's next statement. Abraham said, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Now, if you, hear, if you were here last week, I encourage you to think about this statement all week. I hope you did. Who in their right mind wants to go from heaven to hell? But obviously someone does, or Abraham wouldn't have said this. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot. There's only one other character in the story. It's Lazarus. 
I think he's probably leaning over and whispering to Abraham, can I go? Can I go help the very man who was my enemy? That's divine love. That's redemption. That's remembering. This is what we are to do with the circumstances of our life, good or bad. Love others the way God loves us, unconditionally and sacrificially. Sadly, the rich man doesn't hear a thing Abraham says. He is asked to remember, but instead he changes the subject. We all love to do that, don't we? We love changing subjects when it gets too close to home. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them so they will not also come to this place of torment. But don't be fooled here. And think, oh, suddenly. Suddenly he sees his helplessness and begins having nice thoughts about helping others. Don't be fooled. First of all, he's talking about his family, and most everyone loves their own blood. That's really not a big deal. And furthermore, do you catch it? He's still abusing Lazarus. A little while ago, he wanted him to be his water boy. Now he wants Lazarus to be his gopher. And he still won't even talk to Lazarus. He continues to ignore him the way he ignored him all of life. Th this guy is something. Side note, remember about a month ago we covered this story? When this woman was doing all sorts of things to Jesus and then... Simon the Pharisee was all upset, and, and Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? Because all Simon saw was a problem. Well, in this parable, it's the same thing. Jesus is asking us. He's asking the rich guy, do you see Lazarus? Do, do we see the persons in our lives? Do we? Or do we see problems? We see inconveniences. We see the person in our life. Ordering Lazarus to do his bidding exposes just how little this guy cares for anyone except himself. I, he didn't even ask if he could go. Let me go and warn my brothers. I don't know. He's too busy still. This guy's entire life was about himself. Now, Abraham's seemingly brief response to this is full of even more insight into this man's character. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let them hear them. He references the great writings of Moses, which is also, by this time, the beginning of the Shema. The Shema is a, a twice-daily prayer that all Jewish people say from the time they can talk. And it, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it begins, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. But this isn't just about listening. It was beautiful what Dave said this morning about worship. It's, it's not just about singing. This isn't about listening. This is about listening and obeying. If the siblings whom the rich man seems to be so interested in, Abraham is saying, would simply listen and obey the scriptures, they would learn enough to move into redemption. But even the rich guy didn't listen or obey scripture. And see, that's what Abraham is really getting at. Right? So, in, in the first century, about 3 to 10% of the population was literate. That's it. So, you didn't read scripture. If you wanted to 
hear scripture, you had to go to the temple. You had to go. You had to listen. Well, we know what about this guy from the first week of the parable? He was too busy feasting sumptuously every day to go to the temple. He never heard. He never listened because he didn't care about anyone but himself. That's how he lived his life. It was his. And consistent with that attitude, even in death, he now goes from treating Lazarus with disdain to treating Abraham. The, the, the revered Abraham. His own patriarch with the same amount of disdain. He actually tells Abraham he's wrong. No, no, so, hold on, there it is. No, Father Abraham. Remember I said the first week, this is a very dark, dark comedy. And, and we saw some of the aspects of that. This is where it gets to its darkest, most comedic moment. Abraham is in paradise. This guy's in Hades. And he says, no, Abraham, you're wrong. Okay, have fun with that reality. Whatever works for you. Really? And it's so often like this in life, isn't it? We all sort of have our own realities, even when reality is glaring us in the face. And with that, in effect, he seals his own doom. He reveals he will not remember. He will not believe in grace. He will not believe in love. He will not repent, even here in death. Think closely of Abraham's response here. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I mean, this guy has right in front of him proof of resurrection after death. There's Lazarus, alive after death. Yet despite being in Hades itself, he still is not convinced to repent of his ways. Think about that. Have you followed this story? Not once has he begged forgiveness. Not once has he said sorry. Not once has he brought up God. And, and we saw the truth of this. Right? John chapter 12, Jesus raises the other Lazarus from the dead. But it certainly doesn't make the Pharisees and scribes repent of their ways and turn towards redemption. In fact, it, it, they go the other way. They start saying, whoa, we've got to kill Lazarus too. We'll kill Jesus and Lazarus. Proof means nothing when it comes to the things of God. Nothing. You know, we're moving into the Easter season and you're going to start seeing all over the news, you know. Was the tomb empty? I, really? You, you can't prove God. You can't prove his love for us. Certainly scientifically or historically anyway. It must simply be believed or not. I think that's why Jesus said, blessed are those who believe. Jesus came once. He died and he rose again. Some people believed it then. Many did not. Some people believe it now. Many more do not. But I think the problem is not in the lack of proof. But it's in the ludicrousness of grace. See, this is the problem. If it was all about some proving of ourselves by knowing the right thing, 
Right? Oh, well, we got the answers right, Jesus. We're, we're Christian. Or by being winners, or by being the best, or like this rich man being the richest, well, then maybe some sort of proof of an eternal reward would be valuable, or proof of some pedantic type of God would be valuable. But we're dealing with a God who brings resurrection out of death. A God who finds the lost and saves the least. And that goes against all of our understanding of justice and fairness and reality in general. And I think maybe that's what this parable is all about. The rich man will never accept a God who loves a loser. You see, I think the rich man was more horrified that Lazarus was in paradise than he found himself in it. You know, the, I, I don't want to get way off on the side, but you know, there's a lot of people that think, you know, this... The last chance to be saved has to be when we die, because other than that, everyone would just accept heaven once they see it. I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Think about it. Say someone killed your kid, and you got to heaven, and there he is. Would you really want to go there? That's not justice. See, I have no problem with. People can come to God when they want because I think grace is grace. And it's either attractive or it's not. And most of us don't find grace attractive. It's ludicrous. This rich man will never bow to a God who for all intents and purposes is a loser himself. Think about this, please. Remember this. Try for a minute, those of us who have been brought up in church, to forget about always being presented with the cross as some textbook thing that we need to give mental assent to or credence that, oh yes, I think that is true. Just forget that for a second and just remember this. This is the God of the universe being slaughtered by his own creation. The God of the universe being killed by his own children. God of the universe bringing us redemption by laying his own life down. The rich man would never believe this. Do we? No, do we? Let's find out. Let's think about this. Who in our lives right now needs us? Who needs our time? Who needs our resources? Who needs our forgiveness? Who needs our mercy? Who needs our love? Even at great cost. You know, when there's people in my life that need something, long before I even get to the reasons I should give it to them, I've got a dozen reasons why I shouldn't, and they're all good. You want my time? I don't have time. I have three different jobs, and I'm a father. I work 90 hours a week. I don't have time for you. 
You want my money? You really want my money? I'm like the perfect candidate for those ads on the radio. Do you have $25,000 in credit card debt? You need to call us right now, one none. And you want me to give you money? You want my forgiveness? You just gotta do it again. And again. And again. And again. But I think if we believe in this, if we remember this, which we're all about to do, we have to give those things to others, don't we? For in the end, Jesus told this parable to warn us. Because those convinced that living is the instrument of salvation, death is such an unacceptable device that they will not be convinced even by resurrection. For to those people, Jesus' mistake was not in his rising in an insufficiently clear way and then sailing off into the clouds. His great strategic miscalculation was dying in the first place after such a grievous capitulation to lastness and loss, no self-respecting winner could even think of doing business with him. But Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable, improve the improvable, or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection in the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of on a life he cannot. On a death he can use. Our death, when we lay it all down for others. Might God help us all to live this way and to remember this.